Welcome to episode 394 with my guest Dylan Brody. I'm Paul Gilmartin. Uh, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, in case you've reached us by mistake. It's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist or a doctor. This is more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com, and mentalpod is the handle you can follow me at on Twitter and Instagram. There's also a Facebook page. I forget to mention that sometimes for for the show, uh, facebook.com slash uh, mentalpod. Yes, mentalpod. And uh, so if you, if you haven't been spied on lately and you're interested in connecting to some listeners, go to facebook.com slash mentalpod. Uh, there's also a forum for this show. I forget to mention that as well. There's a lot of things I forget. Uh, and you can access that through going to, uh, to our website. And it's a good place to introduce yourself and find a specific to- a topic to talk about. There's some really, really cool, compassionate people in the, in the forum. And I pretty much stay out of it because, uh, A, I don't have time <laughs> to go in there and it would be overwhelming if I started getting into that too, in addition to the surveys and responding to emails and uh, recording people and et cetera, et cetera. But I also kind of like that uh, people can talk freely about the podcast and if there's an episode they don't like, uh, you know, they're, they're, they have the privacy to discuss that uh, or an episode they love, they can talk about that too. I'm getting off on a tangent. Um, just got back two days ago from the European. Would it be would it be too much to call it a touring extravaganza? Is that is that a bit? Is there a little bit too much hubris in that? I was in Ireland, Northern Ireland, and Croatia. And recorded some really, really great episodes in Ireland and Northern Ireland. And, um, I, Croatia was, was mostly just, uh, a, a way to, to unwind. And, um, I didn't realize how much I needed rest until I was floating on a raft in the Adriatic Sea. And I suddenly felt so light and I don't know, it's like this weight just kind of fell away from me. And who knew that eight years without a week off from hearing about people jumping off bridges or being fingered by their uncle could take a toll on somebody? Turns out it it did. And I feel renewed and refreshed and I'm I'm excited to be back back into this and um I also want to thank the people who helped make the trip possible through GoFundMe. Uh I want to thank Dawn Ring who helped set up the GoFundMe um to to help raise money to contribute to the to the trip. 
and I want to also thank BetterHelp, who is, uh, is, are, uh, they're kicking in a little bit of money to, to, um, sponsor the episodes that are, that are posting. Uh, will be posting over the next uh, month, month and a half. There's, if I haven't mentioned it yet, there's, I think, six episodes that, that I recorded. And I uh, can't wait for you guys to hear them because they're really, they're really good. And speaking of better help, um, if you are at all curious about online therapy, go check it out. The feedback I get from listeners and friends who have tried it is great. Uh, I've been doing it for a year and a half, and I, I love it. So go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental, then they know that you came from the, the podcast. Uh, betterhelp.com slash mental. Fill out a questionnaire, and then they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is a good fit for you, and you need to be over 18. Um, just a couple of, of thoughts that I, I want to share with, with you guys, um, about the trip. When I'm, I don't want to share all of the moments that I, uh, experienced on the, on the trip right here because it would, uh, could probably be its, its own episode, but, um, <laughs> just a couple of moments I wanted to, to share with you on the flight home. This guy comes up to me and he says, um, would, and I was sitting on a window seat and he said, would you mind switching seats with me? And he was, he was standing there with his, his wife. And I said, um, oh, is there someone that you want to sit next to? And he said, no, I just really like window seats. And it, occurred to me what he was asking was for me to sit with his wife instead of him. I've been flying for 30 years professionally. I have never had somebody want to take the brunt of somebody they didn't want to be around. Uh, and here's where therapy and support groups and recovery kicked in. I was so afraid of saying no and that this stranger, who I would never again see in my entire life, would think less of me. My impulse was to say, oh, sure, but I like a window seat. And I said, actually, I'd like to sit by the window. And that was it. And I felt really proud of myself. It, <laughs> that I walked through that fear. And I guess, you know, all I, all I really want is to be loved by every single person on earth and to have them leave me alone until I feel like talking and then have them drop everything that they're doing. And I don't think that that is too much to ask. Um, I should also mention that uh, I will be, to those of you that are a monthly Patreon donors, I will be posting some pictures of the trip and maybe uh, an occasional video here or there. Um, and another announcement is, and
understand it, but right now I'm kind of freaking out because my brain is saying, well, what if you lose the energy to do this? Then you have promised this to these people. But I'm just going to say it anyway. The hope is in the next week or two to begin um, putting out a mini, mini episode once a week. And I'm thinking maybe on Mondays would be nice. And it would probably be nothing more than a survey or two. I'm thinking maybe some Hall of Fame happy moments or awful some moments, uh, or maybe even a really moving shame and secrets survey. Uh, so that that is the hope to begin doing that. All right. I want to read, uh, and I love the, the serendipity sometimes of the surveys that I read um, because I just got back from taking a work trip and a, a little bit of vacation uh, in there as well. And I looked at the memorable vacation arguments survey, and there was some great ones in there. And I want to read those to you, um, or at least one right now. A couple more are going to be in the surveys after the interview. This one is filled out by a woman who calls herself Sonic Trash. And uh, she writes, I grew up poor, so I didn't get to go on a lot of vacations growing up. However, my single mom has always had utterly terrible taste in men. In parentheses, truly, imagine the grossest stereotype of a stepfather, and that's every man my mom was ever with while I was growing up. Uh, when my mom started going to NA meetings at a men's, and that stands for Narcotics, Narcotics Anonymous, at a men's maximum security prison, and in the parentheses, question mark, exclamation point, and met her newest boyfriend, an incarcerated man named Jack, she found an excuse for my sister and I to go on a vacation with her, exclamation point. And I just want to inject a side note here. Um, my understanding uh, is that when 12-step meetings are brought into uh, facilities uh, like prisons or rehabs, uh, the rules generally are that you do not have contact with anybody in there uh, while you are doing the... No personal information is supposed to be given to them. And certainly... Uh, not flirting with that person and making plans to hook up later. Just just my understanding. Anyway, uh, you see, Jack was transferred to a prison in a small town called Drumheller. Drumheller is known for two things. One, it's a dinosaur-themed town. It has one of the largest deposits of dinosaur bones in the world, and the whole town is covered with crappy statues of dinosaurs, and there's actually a really good museum there. Two, it is also known for its prison. So, when Jack got transferred to Drumheller, all of a sudden we were allowed to take a vacation there. I love that your mom called it a vacation. This vacation was supposed to consist of a four-hour drive to the town where we would spend all day in a prison visiting room to spend the day with my mom and her boyfriend while they made gross, inappropriate comments and surely wished that my sister and I weren't there. The argument that ensued actually wasn't between me and my sister or my mom, but between my mom and a prison guard when a test swipe of her keys showed positive results for cocaine. 
My mom actually had been sober for a while, and it was probably a glitch on the machine, but I got to watch my mom scream at the prison guard about letting us into this prison, how we drove four hours, and how she will have a cavity search if that's what it takes. The prison guards wouldn't let up, and we just had to get into the car and drive away. The best part, because we didn't have to spend all goddamn day in a prison, my sister and I got to go to the dinosaur museum, gift shop, and even to a snake store to meet weird animals. It was the best turnout for a set of 10-year-old girls, but not so much for my prison wife, mom. It's funny how you can be totally submerged in bullshit growing up, but only realize just how bad things were when you are 30 years old. And a childhood memory pops into your head, making you burst out laughing at the absurdity of it all. And also how incredibly happy you are to be an adult who doesn't have to follow their parents' bad decisions anymore. At the time, I didn't think twice about that particular bad relationship. P.S. Jack was in prison for murdering a woman. My mom had plans to marry Jack and for him to live with us in our trailer as he was supposed to be paroled soon. The relationship ended when, shockingly, Jack turned out to be ridiculously possessive, angry at, and jealous of my mom. I wish I could say that her taste in men has changed, but it definitely hasn't. I am just glad that I don't have to listen to her have phone sex with murderers anymore. That is so fantastic. That is, uh, that could actually be an awful some moment too. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I want to give some love to uh, our sponsor, Care Of. Even when you try to maintain a healthy diet, it can be hard to get all the nutrients your body needs for long-term health. And Care Of is a monthly subscription vitamin service made from effective quality ingredients that are personally tailored to your exact needs. So go online, you take their quiz, it asks you about your diet, your health goals, your lifestyle choices, and it's super easy to figure out what vitamins and supplements you specifically need in just a couple of minutes. And uh, I did it and it was really simple and they told me what uh, vitamins and supplements would be good for me. So, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about having eight bottles of stuff laying around when you run out because your subscription box includes uh, a 30-day supply of individually wrapped packets and it's about 20% less than similar brands would be. (laughs) It's about 20% less than similar brands would be at a local uh, drugstore or health food store. And uh, I just had them right there on my kitchen counter. And when I would wake up in the morning, I would either take the packet then, or if I wanted to take it later, uh, just pop a packet in my pocket and uh, take it to go. So it's convenient. And uh, I think you'll dig it. So for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, visit takecareof.com and enter the offer code MENTAL. That's takecareof.com and enter the code MENTAL for 25% off your first month of personalized vitamins. And I'll put the links to uh, this and other stuff that I mention on the website. And then one more thing to read before we get to the the interview with uh, with Dylan. Uh, also, a memorable vacation argument filled out by a woman who calls herself the Pride Candle. And she writes, 
My parents and I went to the big Yankee candle factory store for an afternoon while they visited me at college once. In the parentheses, for reference, it's a huge Christmas-themed adult Chuck E. Cheese. We had been having a particularly good day together, talking, laughing, and for once not arguing. I guess I got a bit too comfortable because as we walked through the store sniffing candles and admiring Christmas ornaments, I turned to my mother and just sort of spat out, Mom, I'm gay. As if on cue, in the middle of the store, on a dusty old stage, this horrifying, glitchy, uncanny, valley-esque animatronic band roared to life and started playing its afternoon show just in time for my mother herself to short-circuit. Now she's hurling abuse at me while we pretend to look at glass bird ornaments, calling me a liar, saying I'm just confused and threatening to pull me out of school. All while a bastardized C-3PO is pantomiming Jingle Bell Rock in the background. By the grace of God, I blacked out. When I came to, we were in the register line with a basket full of monogrammed hand towels I don't remember picking up. I became aware that I was drenched in sweat. I heard myself saying something like, You're probably right. I'm just confused. Not a big deal. As abruptly as I had come out of the closet, I turned and ran right back in. We walked in silence from the register to the car and rode in silence back to my dorm. I said goodbye and turned to hop out of the car and heard my mother say behind me, you just had to ruin Yankee Candle. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom, people-pleasing, dread, silent, invisible, just wailing, stuck in the grip of the obsession, derealization, depersonalization, the suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get, you know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Dylan Brody, who was recommended by somebody who we can't remember. So if that person is listening, thank you for, uh, uh, or depending on how this goes, uh, we're going to shake our fists at you. Either one. You know what? I am capable of thanking people while shaking my fist at them. I'm, I'm just that flexible in my feelings about people. Uh, Dylan, you are originally from the East Coast. You're how many years of age? 50? I am 52. 52. 52 years of age. Um, you're a playwright, uh, yes. stand-up comedian. Former stand-up comedian. Former stand-up comedian. Uh, you do some acting. You Occasionally, yes. You blog on the Huffington Post. Uh, what am I missing? I also blog on Daily Cause. Okay. I am a humorist and storyteller. Okay. Uh, I'm the guy that David Sedaris has open for him when he's on the West Coast. Which nice. is a huge honor. I yeah, guess. that's got to be my nice. favorite credit. Yeah, uh, I'm a regular commentator on NPR's Off Ramp with John Raby. Uh, I am a novelist. Uh, You're a Renaissance man. 
I, uh, you know what? That is only because I wear tights. I wear tights and <laughs> you a look, doublet. But you look good. You look well, good thank in that. You. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I was asking uh, Dylan before we started recording, what are the issues that uh, that he struggles with? And uh, he said what we say in uh, the recording business quite often, save it. Save it till we're recording. Save it for the microphone. Yeah. So what, what are the issues that you uh, struggle with? Depression? Depression, a lifelong thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some anxiety, certainly social anxiety, which mm-hmm. is very difficult in in performing professions. Well, you know, it makes sense to me in performing professions because what you're essentially doing is you're controlling the, the social situation. That's exactly right. I have learned over the years to be able to deal with crowds of people that aren't all looking at me and adoring me. <laughs> but it took a long time for me to get that. Yeah. Um, and when that's what you crave and need, it makes parties very difficult because either uh, you and by you, I mean, I will act utterly inappropriately mm-hmm. or will not get my needs met and uh, will feel uncomfortable and have to leave. Yeah. And I've just learned and there's a point at some parties where I do just have to I ghost. Yeah, I, I, I can hang at a party unless it's a small party with all the people I know, and we know each other's sense of humor, that's the only place I feel comfortable. If it's a party with just even three or four strangers in there, uh, I just feel the energy drain out of my body. Unless people start talking about stuff that's deep and meaningful. Yes. And then, and then I begin to uh, feel charged. I understand that. Um, there's a group of people that I've become friends with over the past, I want to say, eight years. Uh, one of whom holds regular parties at her house. And at those parties, I feel as though I've found my tribe. I am capable in those situations of hanging out. And sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll leave early if I start to get uncomfortable. But there are nights I just hang out late until the night and late into the night mm-hmm. and sit with people that I like and can feel comfortable. But it really does feel as though as an adult, I have finally found a tribe I am comfortable with. Also, I'm on medication now. And I suspect that helps with it all. Oh, it helps greatly. It yeah. helps greatly. Uh, what are you, what are you on? I'm on Paxil. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell if it, it, I'll tell you a story. I was about to ask permission to tell you a story. We're doing a podcast. <laughs> You're not going to object to me telling you a story. Yes, Dylan. Would you hang out and just listen to me for my podcast, please? Hey, there are some podcasts that are like that, <laughs> and I've had moments of that on here. So, <laughs> um, I for years I smoked pot all the time, and I didn't know I was medicating against depression and anxiety. I just knew that I felt human when I was stoned, and. In my early 30s, I went into a bad depression and went into therapy and started studying martial arts. And my therapist told me that it was good that I had been smoking pot because without it, I would have been suicidal. There was, he said, there was very little likelihood that I would have survived to ever see him had I not been self-medicated. Really? Yeah. Um, but then uh, martial arts study allowed me to wean myself off pot and cigarettes after, you know, having smoke in my lungs nonstop from the time I was 14. Was it because it gave you an outlet for your energy and a distraction or was it because it brought you some type of peace? The martial arts? Yeah. Um, or both. All of those things. Yeah. It, um I'll come back to the story about medication in a moment, but I, I'm happy to talk about martial arts as much as you want. Um 
And you're Part, like a black belt or something? And- I'm a Taekwondo master, fourth Dan black belt, a Hapkido instructor with a third Dan black belt, and a Kikumdo black belt, first Dan. Um, wow. And, and he's wearing a vest. It's and, very confusing, the messages I, that are being yeah. sent. Well, because I approached it as art and intellectual endeavor, even as it was requiring that I live in my body in a way I never had before. One of the things that would happen as I was studying is that I would go home from class weeping in my car. And I asked uh, my master about it and my therapist about it separately. Uh, and my master said, huh, you maybe need to sometimes cry. And my therapist said, yeah, you've been storing emotional life in your muscle memory since you were a child. And as your muscles are learning to control themselves in different ways, it's all getting released. And that's perfectly natural. Allow that. Don't hate yourself for it. And I said, have you met me? If I hated myself anymore, I'd be Richard Lewis. Um, (laughs) But uh, because I I use therapy to try out the new material. Um, So, yeah, it was all of those things. I I was a non-athletic kid, and I had really internalized a lot of insecurity about that. Um, And that began to melt away as I studied. And also, I was learning my body in a way that I had never been able to, partly because of the internalized sense of non-athleticism. Um, forgive me, I, they couldn't see that, but I was doing a visual Woody Allen impression for a moment. Doing a little quiet burp. Um, it was, it's yeah. my Bradley Whitford acting technique. Um, uh, I was... Uh, so that was all going on. And, then there, and I was... I couldn't do stand-up. Because I'd been a stoned, left-leaning political comic for so many years. And I didn't know who I was if I wasn't stoned and smoking on stage. I, didn't, I just didn't know who I was without that. So I stopped doing stand-up. And for about 10 years, I was doing eight classes a week at the martial arts studio. Uh, and that is enough to keep you focused on something other than your own internal spirals. And then there was a point at which... A friend of mine noticed that I was depressed again. I hadn't noticed. Uh, He noticed and suggested that I try medication. It It turned out later that he was also suffering from depression and wanted to see if medication worked for me before he tried it. Because (laughs) clearly you're having problems again. And I went home to my uh, wife and I said... Uh, this friend of mine says I should try medication. She said, oh, I'm so glad you're considering it. I said, well, what, what, what? Where is that? She said, oh, yeah, you've been depressed for months. So I... Uh, was the, that a relief to hear her say that? No, it was shocking. Were you embarrassed? Oh, deeply. I really thought that the martial arts alone had handled it for me. So you thought you were walking around looking like a Zen master and everybody was like, wow, this guy needs to get his shit together. I thought, yeah, and I was being a dick to everybody. And as soon as she said that, I realized what a dick I was being to everybody. But, And there were people, I would go into the studio and I would go up to instructors who were with a student and correct them on the one flaw in what they were doing because it was all I could see. Wow. I was just, I, I was, and I, I, this behavior I remember from my dad for my whole life. Uh, my dad, who, when I told him I was getting medicated for depression, said, I don't know what makes you think you have the right just to be happy all the time, Dylan. Um, wow. Uh, but Was your dad a know-it-all? 
my, or just hypercritical? Or my what? dad was for ten years the associate provost for the arts at MIT. My dad is uh, intellectual artiste mm-hmm. who protected his own art from any of the taint of the marketplace. I said taint mm-hmm. um, by supporting himself in academia. He is. I am not just pompous. I am second generation pompous. <laughs> um, well, you want a water? Oh yes, please. That would be lovely. Because uh, I left my coffee in my car. Um, second generation pompous. So I. Um, the first thing they tried me on was Prozac, and I was still teaching at the studio. I don't teach at the studio anymore at this time, uh, but at that time I was still teaching at the studio, and I had been on. Prozac for three days, and I'm teaching the adult hep keto class, and a younger black belt is working with a partner on a demo that he's going to do at a at a tournament. And it was distracting, and I couldn't stay focused. And I asked them to just keep it down on the other side of the studio, please. And they said okay. And then uh, their noise level rose again slowly because they're kids and they're working mm-hmm. on a thing and they're focused on what they're doing. And I asked them again to be quiet. And this is one of the instructors that I had been irritating for months by Mm. being a jerk without realizing it. And he had had enough. And he came over and got in my face in front of a class and lectured me on having proper respect for him and minding my tone with him and how tired he was of all of it. And in my mind, all I could do was focus on my breathing to keep from hitting him. Mm. I was ready to just go. And I was then in my early 40s, and he was in his late teens. And while I was higher in rank than he is, he is more flexible than I am. He is younger and more testosterone than I am. All you had to say was, I was in my late 40s, there's, and he was and in his late teens. There's, there's, <laughs> like, there's any number of reasons that it is quite possible he could have just kicked my ass. Yeah. And all I was doing was focusing on my breathing and not, don't do this, don't. He was over 18, though, right? Yes. Oh, okay, because yes. I was like, if you were thinking about punching somebody that was under 18, man, that's really... Uh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. There's, no, there's no time when a Taekwondo master should be thinking about hitting someone for something they're saying. That's just yeah. not how it works. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was trembling, and I got in my car after the class. I, he walked away. I finished teaching class. I got in my car. I called the nurse advisory pharmaceutical people. I'm pretty sure that's the title. And I said, uh, I just had this experience. And they said, stop taking it. Usually we get this call after someone else has put someone through the wall. Wow. Uh, it's re- I think it's your martial arts training that kept you from hitting him. Stop taking it. And I was like, well, shouldn't that be on the contraindications? Do not take when interacting with human beings. Like, Come on. <laughs> uh, and she said, talk to your psychiatrist tomorrow about finding a new prescription. But that's mm-hmm. not there. So I stopped taking it. And I called the psychiatrist. And I said, uh, that wasn't good. And he said, okay, let's try you on the net. And he put me on Paxil. And it immediately, and like within a week, my depression was changing and I was feeling a difference in mood. And, after, and what was that first one? Prozac. That Prozac. was Prozac. Yeah. Um, and the Paxil really helped. And after eight or ten months, I got a note from him through the email that said, hey, uh, usually after this amount of time, 
we start to wean you off. Would you like to try that? And I said, sure. So I cut back from a pill a day to three quarters of a pill a day because they don't really know how the psychiatric drugs work. This is why they have to sort of try different ones until they find the one that works mm -hmm. for you. And then it's very complicated because it's it's all very detailed chemical balances that they're oh, I've manipulating. Been I've been doing meds for what are you on? 16 years. Oh, how, how long do you have? All right, we'll come yeah, back to it. A lot. I understand. Yeah. Um, and I said, sure. So I cut back from a pill to three quarters of a pill a day. And after three days, I had a meeting uh, down on the on the west side. And I was driving down the 405, and I always leave plenty of time to get places. I'm, I'm neurotically punctual. Hmm. And on the way there, I was figuring out the things I was going to be pissed off about when I arrived. There was this internal monologue that was incredibly familiar but that i hadn't had for eight months where i was figuring i was gonna I, i'll complain about how bad the traffic was it wasn't that bad and i better not run late because of this traffic and and they they better not make me pay for parking when i get there for a meeting that's about a job that i don't have i'm not paying their mm -hmm. parking and then you know there was a, a spot right out front <laughs> i i pulled into the spot right out front and i called my psychiatrist and I said, listen, tell me if this makes any sense. I have reduced my uh, dosage by a quarter of a pill for three days, four days, and I can feel all the darkness on the planet gathering at the base of my spine and crawling up into the creases in my brain uh, to, to infect my thoughts with negativity and, and rage. Is that possible? And he said, wow. And you say this was your first depression we were treating? And I said, what? I never said that. I've been depressed since I was a child. I said, stay on it. Apparently, you are supremely attuned to this medication. It is the one you need. Yeah. Stay on it. If it comes back, then we'll figure out new dosages. But don't stop doing it. And I just up by that quarter pill again. And I've been fine ever since. That's fantastic. It's And I was shocked when when he wanted to wean you off it, because usually psychiatrists are the other way. It's like, if this is working for you, man, what, what don't, change said, a, don't change a thing. What he said was that most people uh, want to be off meds. And I know it's true for me, too. I still sometimes think, I should be able to wean myself. I understand now how it's in my head, and I can surely I can control mm -hmm. it, which is a load of crap, but I think it. I just, I want to be able, to, I want to be stronger than the chemicals that make up the me that wants to be stronger than it makes no sense. But also he said, uh, if it's a first time bout of depression that is caused by something, if it is sadness that is yes. hit and then has sort of become habitual, then 50 to 70% of the time, I think he said, they can treat it and the balance is restored and people are yes, fine. Yes, if it was event-driven. But is, it is was it not event-driven. I mean, it yeah. was event-driven by the fact that I'm I'm Russian-Jewish and raised by Russian Jews <laughs> and uh, and have had a lifetime and of training. A, and and I had a dad who was an academic art snob. Yeah, exactly. Who withheld love. Exactly. Well, he did not withhold love. No? No. No. But part of his uh, offering of love includes being what he would consider completely honest and See, to me that's not what love. turns yeah. out to be sometimes uh simply a venting of the inability to see anything but flaw yeah um and that means that you know i'll give you an example i wrote my first novel uh still unpublished available if anyone listening is in the publishing industry uh when i was in high school i i started when i was 14 finished when i was 17 
and I used it in lieu of one of the essays to get into college without a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sent it to my dad to read. Remember, 17 years old, 320-page novel, adventure fantasy, with characters and story arc and dialogue and action and descriptive and everything you need to have a novel. And he read it and said, there's some really good work here, Dylan. I wouldn't show this to anyone. It's the kind of thing that could ruin a career. <laughs> that now, is the most mixed <laughs> message I have ever heard. Now, as an adult looking back, I realize that there is no novel that a 17-year-old could submit to a publisher that would cause them to go, well, I never want to see anything this guy does again. But my father was a writer who was finding safety in academia, and he had his own questions and qualms about the publishing industry and how it all works and what, what hurts a career and what makes a career. And he was trying to protect me. Yeah. In all the wrong ways. I, from all the people that I've interviewed, the most common mistake that a parent makes is trying to protect their child from failures or criticism. And they usually wind up um, smothering that kid or sucking the joy out of their life because they're like, I, I don't want my kid to get, you know, too much on a on a high because then they're going to come crashing oh, yeah. down. In my, in my family, we say this too shall pass when we hear good news. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's that kind of a worldview. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's only in the last 10 years that I learned that that's a worldview. It's not, it's not a better worldview than any other. It is not more attached to reality. It is not wiser. It is not smarter and it is not healthier. No, it's definitely not healthier. It's, it's just a worldview. Yeah. Um, and it's one that my father will hold on to until he dies. Uh, may he rest in peace already. So what was childhood like? Give me some snapshots from, from childhood. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I grew up in a, in a small upstate New York town, Schuylerville, New York, outside of Saratoga Springs. What's it called? Schuylerville. Skyverville? Skylerville. Skylerville. Um, it's outside of Saratoga Springs. It is where the Battle of Saratoga actually took place. It is where General Schuyler and General Burgoyne faced off at the Saratoga Landmark Battle Memorial. Were they smoking Saratoga cigarettes? Yes. Yes, okay. they were. Um, and what? you know, and they knew where to fight because it was called the Saratoga Landmark Battle <laughs> Memorial. They're, oh, this must be the place. Um, was one of them wearing Dock Siders and a yachting cap? Yes, yes. With the sweater around his Schuyler, neck. Schuyler, <laughs> General Schuyler wore the the Dock Siders, and uh, General Burgoyne uh, wore. Uh, uh, I don't know where I'm going. With uh, this. A nice I, pastel I, tennis yes, outfit. Wearing, that's exactly. He wore a, a, a sweater vest. Was the phrase <laughs> I was looking for. He wore a sweater vest uh, and. Uh, and golf pants, because that's how you dressed in those days. Yeah. Um, I, in fact, lived at the corner of Burgoyne Street in Schuylerville. It's like it's mm-hmm. steeped in Revolutionary War uh, 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 history and, and tradition. And what I used to say on stage is that um, on the day that we moved into Schuylerville, I was four years old when we drove all night in a huge pink Plymouth I don't know why my parents had a huge pink, but it was a, a mm-hmm. 
it was the kind of car you could launch smaller vehicles from. If you <laughs> and uh, we drove all night, and it was the sun was just coming up as we pulled into Schuylerville into our new house. My dad was going to be teaching nearby at Skidmore College. And we drove past the sign that said, Welcome to Schuylerville, population 954. And that afternoon, in a Norman Rockwell gesture, the old white-haired mayor himself drove out to the sign because we had moved in. And changed the and number. And with a bucket O paint, he amended the sign to say, And some Jews. <laughs> um... It was that kind of a town. Um, the mill, the paper mill closed two years before we moved in. So it was an impoverished town. The Vietnam War was still on. And with the exception of me, with the exception of my family, every family had someone that was fighting in Vietnam or had returned from Vietnam or hadn't. Um, and my family were lefty pinko peaceniks mm -hmm. we went on peace marches and protested the war um which i imagine probably upset some of your neighbors yeah there was a lot of and and that upset them the fact that we were jewish upset them uh there were several boys who i i i say that i was beaten up regularly as a child by kids on the way home from school the truth is, I suspect it was only seven or ten times mm -hmm. over the course of my childhood, but I was frightened all the time when I was outdoors. Yeah. I was frightened all the time. Uh, there was a particular family that had a bunch of boys, any of whom would beat me up if they were in the right mood to. Uh, and there were a couple other kids at school who would just vent their familial rage at me. Um, I read a lot of comic books. Um, what were your favorites? When I was seven to ten, seven to eleven, uh, it was the DC stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I had the big hardbacked Batman from the 30s to the 70s and Superman from the 30s to the 70s, as well as every week's new wow. installment uh, as they came into Larman's newsroom. Uh I didn't own all of them. I, I At that time, I got a quarter of a week allowance, which was enough to buy a comic book. But when it was still Bill Larman who ran Larman's newsroom, I was allowed to sit on the floor and read all of them before I decided which one to buy. And then eventually he sold it to someone else who put up a sign that said, this is not a library. <laughs> and it made that a little more difficult. Um, and then when I was about 12 or so, I began to discover uh marvel and uh i remember having a uh black light silver surfer poster on my wall mm -hmm. um did you ever get into uh r crumb i was aware of r crumb and i read some r crumb he was never my favorite thing yeah. um partly because uh my <laughs> I just realized this as you asked me this. My parents, among other weird issues they have, my parents are tremendously weight conscious. Um, we, anytime we visited anybody, family, friends of theirs, afterwards when we got in the car to go home, the conversation was about the weight of the people we had just seen. Wow. Well, he's gained weight. Yeah, but she looks terrific. Like that conversation was the first thing that happened in the in the car. 
Um, my father told me over and over again that he had been a fat kid and was never going to be a, overweight again. Um, and R. Crumb has a thing for heavy women. And all of the characters in his books were just unappealing to me mm. because I, you know, I, it had been so instilled in me, this idea that if there is any excess weight, it is uh, a sign of some deep inner sadness and uh, uh, sexual dysfunction. And those people should be pitied and looked down upon and uh, disdained. Um, so no, our crumb never did anything for, I, you know, I have, and I've talked about this before. I have a, a deep seated lifelong fetish for amputees. And when I was in high school or college, I discovered a single issue of a comic book called amputee love. That was the only thing I had ever seen that told me there were other people in the world like me. Wow, that must have been amazing it for was, you. It was an extraordinary moment. It was from Last Gasp Comics in San Francisco, and it was an underground comic, and it was a source of shame at the same time that it was a great relief. And then mm. the internet came, and I found out that, yeah. oh, there are a whole bunch of us secret people scared and hiding what, in the world. Whatever turns you on, there is somebody else, Yeah, if not millions I had of a, other people I had out a there. joke about it in my act for years that I wrote because Larry David, when I was 17, I got in at the improv, and Larry David had a joke in his act that I can't remember, mm. but it affected me so deeply that I knew I needed to write a joke about that. And this was before I started coming out about it and talking about it openly. And I only talk about it openly. It's still a source of shame. And every time I talk about it, it makes me very uncomfortable and tense. But I feel as though there are enough people living with shame. And if I could just talk openly about it, despite a little bit of shame, it mm -hmm. might open up some people's worlds toward who they are. But Larry David had a joke that began, uh, men have a perversion for everything. And I don't remember where he went from there. I just remember him saying it and me going, oh, he's exploring. I got I to start to, I've got to do this. Years later, like three or four years ago, I ran into him in a parking lot. And I said, Larry. And he said, what? <laughs> and I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah, go ahead. And it was very clear there's some question that everybody asks him. I don't know what it is. And did he know who you were? Or No. no. Okay. Um, I, I, there was a screenplay I wanted to get to, and there were yeah. reasons, other reasons that I wanted to talk to him, and mm -hmm. we had all the conversations we needed to have after that. But I said, you used to have this joke, uh, men have a fetish for anything. And he said, that, yeah, no, that wasn't it. I remember this. It was, I loved this joke. It was, uh, men have a perversion for everything. Men have a perversion for, I remember saying this. And he was like looking up at the sky and seeking back into his memories from 40 years ago, 30 years ago. And I'm like, yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember what it was, but boy, thanks for reminding me of that. That was a good joke, whatever it was. And then he walked off into the building. Yeah. Um, and it was nice that, that he remembered liking that joke. Uh, cause it was such an, but I still have no idea what his joke was. So has there been an arc to that that fetish in your life uh, in terms of how you you view yourself? Um, oh, yes. How you uh, 
uh, is it still the, the primary thing that, that, that turns you on? Absolutely. Okay. And I should say my, uh, my wife has all her original parts. Uh, her, <laughs> her, her only flaw is her physical perfection as far as I'm concerned. Um, we had, we've had guests on here who, um, had, uh, a diaper fetish, um, a woman who, um, becomes aroused by, uh, people vomiting, um, the, the list goes on and on. In the surveys that we read that p- people fill out anonymously, uh, I've read every possible thing that you could uh, imagine, and it, it's w- fantastic. The human psyche is extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and the ability of the human psyche to imprint on things sexually is just remarkable. Um, and to some degree, I'm sure, you know, it... it it has to do with the sheer number of us that there are in the world now. Uh, but also, you know, I get the sense that it's just there's a moment in childhood, at least for men. I, women don't seem to be as fetish driven as men do. Men oh, seem no. To, they, yeah. No. Trust me. They, they are? Yes. I, okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, According to the surveys but that, we that, seem that to, I read and the women that I know. It seems that there's a point. This is my theory. I say it seems as though I am a, mm-hmm. a, a, a studied doctor on this. I, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. My theory is this. There is a point in childhood at which certain hormones turn on for the first time and touch the proper synapses to create sexual response. And whatever happens to be crossing your mind at that moment... Absolutely. Is then forever imprinted as yep. the thing, and you're just you're done. Yep. Um, and it's, it's it's just a roll of the dice. Very strange, and and naturally in a a society that perpetually shows images of breasts and images of legs and images of women in bikinis, there are going to be a great number of men who turn on at the right moment that they happen to be looking at and thinking about mm-hmm. those things. Yeah. And then everything else on the planet gets one or two of us. <laughs> so, uh, what are anxiety, depression? You feel like those are kind of in check now with, uh, thanks to, to meds. Most of the time. Yeah. Um, what are some of the anxious or depressed thoughts that are the greatest hits of, you know, bouncing around in your skull? Well, even, even with the uh even with the meds i will frequently rock myself to sleep with suicidal ideation i have you know the um there's a there's a book that i had out called the modern depression guidebook that's going to be i'm going to re-release it as an ebook very mm-hmm. soon um that it takes the approach that uh you've never done anything right in your life, you might as well at least be good at depression. <laughs> um, and it's a, I, I think it's a really funny book. And it, it near the end, there's a whole chapter on suicidal ideation. I am very creative in my suicidal ideation. I figured out when I was like 14 that a lot of people consider suicide. A lot of people attempt suicide. A lot of people commit suicide. I think more than we like to admit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have always felt that life itself is an artist's greatest work, that the arc of the life 
has its own vision and its own and you can't fully control it like all art you're sort of riding the the weft and the the wave is that right the the wax and the wobble wax you're, and the wane you are riding the flux of the whole thing yeah. and doing your best to keep the pieces making sense and if you're going to commit suicide you should make it damned entertaining so for instance i have had the thought that you could drill use a, a diamond headed drill bit to put a hole in your rear windshield and buy a long spool of piano wire that gets attached to your uh, rear axle, run through the hole, coiled on the back seat, and then noosed around your neck, giving you enough time to get up to speed on the freeway before it uh, snaps through, severs your head, pulls the wire through the hole, and wraps it around your axle, disappearing completely as the car veers off to the right naturally when you've stopped applying pressure and winds up you know in a ditch on the side with the engine running windows up doors locked and you inside beheaded <laughs> just leave a really cool colombo mystery for someone <laughs> to have to figure out um that i think i i am 80 percent certain that there are people in the world who do not put themselves to sleep telling themselves those kinds of stories at night uh, there's quite a few, uh, but there are the listeners to this show and they share it with their, their surveys. How often you cannot believe how many people on their way home from work scan to see things to run into or off of. Right. I think that's a, a sign of depression that I, that frequently, as frequently as I do think about suicide and it's less frequent than it used to be, but it's not gone. When sadness hits me. I can go into an anxiety spiral about whether I'm becoming depressed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I like to think of depression as when it's a depression that you tend to manage on and off. Uh, I, I like to think of it as a stalker that once you think you've gotten away from it, you've moved to another town. There's a ring at the doorbell. You open the door and it says, oh, did you really think you could escape me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, and so when you're having the good times, you're like, "How long is this going to last? Is this is this a one day thing? Is this is am I going to get a week? Am I going to get a month?" Yeah, um, money triggers anxieties for me, um, and it's weird because lack or abundance of yes, either that's correct. Yeah, <laughs> um, anytime I have to specifically really think about it, I see. Um, I handle all the bill paying in our household. Uh, and my wife makes a steadier income than I do. Sometimes I make chunks of money and she makes money every week, every, well, every month that she's paid, but she, you know, she, she makes a steady living and I make a, an intermittent living. Um, and if I feel like we're short on money, it creates anxiety that is that, you know, I'm doing it wrong as an adult. I'm not making my share. She's doing everything she should be doing, and what is wrong with me as a grown-up that I don't have steady damn income? When we have a big pile of money, as happens occasionally, then I go into an anxiety spiral about 
should I be handling this in some way other than the way I do instead of paying off debt? Is there something I should be investing in? Is that how a grown up would do it? I'm not fully, I don't have a full yes. understanding of the econ- economics of adulthood and it must be my shortcoming. So, so the through line of all of it really is that I don't know. I'm going to make the wrong decision. Right. Get out of my head, damn it. Because <laughs> yes. that, for me, that's yes. the, that's it's- the thought that just curses me constantly. Am I, Am I where I'm supposed to be right now? Um, if if I am, am I doing it the right way? And that's one of the reasons why support groups for me have been such a lifesaver because when I'm in there, that part of my head shuts off because I get to connect with other people. If I'm at a party and somebody start brings up a topic that's pretty heavy and people start opening up and getting vulnerable, that part of my head. I get quiet. That. I totally get that. Deep human connection is the only thing that can really... Weirdly, when I make a decision, any decision, I feel much better. I'm fine. I'm fine with it. And I, it's a lead up. Once I do it, I know that it's all lateral movement, that there are different ways, that, different, that there's no right answer. Yeah. My mom used to ask every time we visited mm-hmm. when we were going to have kids, when are you going to have kids? Finally, I said, stop asking me. So then she would wait until she had my wife alone. Uh, And my wife came to me and said, will you tell your mom to stop asking us this? And finally, I said at dinner, I said, mom, we are not going to have kids because I do not like children. And my mom said, oh, you get that from me. (laughs) And she said it with absolutely genuine joy of having something that she could share with me i started telling the story on stage and when she heard it get a laugh she said see i am funny (laughs) yes it's hilarious how you continue to do the psychic damage well into my 50s what is? Are there any other things that you you struggle with other than the the depression, the anxiety, and the shame? That's a nice. Isn't that's that a good triumvirate. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's mostly those things. Um, uh, yeah, the 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 fetish is a struggle in some ways, but uh, mostly just in terms of of the shame. You asked me earlier about the arc of that. Mm-hmm. And is it hard to, f- uh, I guess not, with the internet. I was going to ask if the, it is hard to find pornography that's uh, related to the that. pornography, okay, now there's some porn that I find fairly uninteresting, like legitimate porn around it that you can find now. Um, I found that comic book when I was a kid, and then uh, I had a copy that I cherished and read over and over again. And then, I love, by the way, that we opened the door as you're going into detail about about this. It's fine. We're in a yeah. lawyer's office. Um, uh, and then in, in a moment of self-loathing, I threw it away and then searched for it until I found another copy. Uh, I eventually gave it away to someone else who needed it more than I did. Um, and I remember going into adult bookstores to look for, do they have anything? Is there anything? Is there, is there anything? And occasionally there was a, a horrible low-end porn magazine called Nugget that would run a piece on it. Uh, Occasionally in penthouse letters there would be a thing, but nothing. Um, And then in the back of a Nugget magazine, there was an ad 
for what was Amp House, I think it was called, that sold uh, devotee materials. It was the first time I'd learned that word. Um, and right here for a, right to this address for a catalog. And I wrote to the address. And how old were you? This is when I was in my mid-twenties. Okay. I wrote to the address and was still lost in enough shame that I altered my last name slightly. As though that was going to somehow protect me from the strangers <laughs> running a small company in Minnesota. And then I got uh, I got a catalog, along with a letter that said, "Dear Sam." I hadn't said Sam anywhere. I don't know why you feel the need to pretend you're not who you are. I got your request. I'm happy to send you a new catalog. But I thought we knew each other well enough that you would feel comfortable. I recognized your address and looked it up in my records. Oh, my and God. And Sam was an old man who lived upstairs from me. No. In the apartment upstairs. And I wrote back to the woman and said, I'm not Sam. Sam lives upstairs from me. I'm 20, whatever. And, this is, and I'm sorry if that made you feel weird I'm oh just, my I'm god with all sorts of shame and self-loathing and i went up and i introduced myself to sam and this old lonely man showed me his collection of photographs and his collection of magazines like everything he had been able to find over a lifetime um and these videos that he had bought from this company uh that were the 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 tamest uh, I, you couldn't even call it pornography. It was, you know, here's a video of a one-legged woman vacuuming her home, fully clothed. Here's a video of, uh, you know, a, a, a legless woman in a wheelchair describing mm. how she lives her day. You know, it's like, like it, it can't even be called pornography, and yet it was a huge turn-on and a... Mm. a uh, and not sort of vindication, yeah. a sense of, you know, um, and then I got my first computer with a, you know, my 14.4 modem where you could download a picture that came through slowly. Line by line. Um, and, and you go, oh, yeah, that one's not interesting. <laughs> what, what is the um, payoff um, obviously arousal, but what what is it specifically within a thing? Is it how that person's what it looks like? Is the is it the touching of of the area where there's the amputation? All of these things, all of these things. What did and you, it's not amputation. It is the the absence of limbs. Yes. Um. The uh. So it has nothing to do with the wound or anything. No. Um. The uh, the, the before I met my wife, there was a woman I was madly in love with who had no feet and one arm. Uh, it was a long-distance relationship, and it was extraordinary. Uh, the two decent relationships I had with women missing limbs were both with congenital amputees, the, uh, which is a, an erroneous word. Uh, 
some people say congenitally limb deficient. Mm-hmm. I would say congenitally. So born without a limb. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, limbs in both cases, mm-hmm. in cases plural. Um, and that I think is because those women are comfortable with who they are and it doesn't bother them that this aspect of them is part of what's interesting and part mm-hmm. of what's uh, arousing. Um, whereas certainly traumatic amputees uh, are dealing with all sorts of issues about their body image and in many cases feel less attractive. And if there are people for whom this makes me more attractive, then that becomes really unsettling yeah. for them. And it starts to feel as though the pleasure I take is in their traumatic mm-hmm. uh, experience. Which but it has not, nothing to do with that's that. That's not what it's yeah. about. Um, and I wish I could say that it's some noble thing about the the strength of the overcoming of the odds, and it's not that. No, get your either. dick hard. Yeah, it's um, right, but what, it's it's uh, visual and it's tactile and mm-hmm. it's um, I in therapy I've had thoughts and 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 uh, explorations of the idea. My my sister, my older sister is gay. I love her like a brother. Um, <laughs> Uh, and she is and has my whole life been an ardent feminist, uh, a militant feminist. And my father uh, was very interested in the women's movement and feminism when I was a child. And my mother, in some ways, is the most dominant figure in my household. Um now, I was growing up in this conservative town where all this stuff outside my family that was coming out was about machismo and masculinity and uh, and traditional gender role. I, mean, I was mocked for having long hair as a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the sense of, of gender role, uh, gender norms was very strong in Schuylerville, but not in my household, right? And I suspect that the first time I became aware of the existence of people missing limbs, some part of me internalized the idea that this was a way that I could feel strong and male and protective and supportive and... uh, and and physically dominant. If you were the person missing no, the limb, no. no. If if somebody with if you, if somebody else was without I her, see. having to be in any way inferior or weaker or any of the things that my family was telling me, it was shameful to think of women as being mm-hmm. right. So as soon as I thought of myself as in any way dominant, that felt wrong. I see. But this was a way in which I could, you know, and and there are a lot of other disabilities that turn me on, mm-hmm. uh, not to the same extent, but still they get to yeah. me. H- have you ever had anybody um, shame you for it? Only once. Uh, when I was in my 20s. And I found 
my replacement copy of the comic book. I wanted to know if there were any more issues of this comic book. That was an issue number one. And I called Last Gasp Comics in San Francisco. And I said, I just found a copy of this thing. I've been looking for it for years. Do you know if there are any other issues of it available? And they said, no, we only put out the one. And I said, do you know if there are any groups of people like me, any other any other people I could contact? And the guy on the phone said, what, you mean like Stump Humpers Anonymous or something? I don't think so, kid. Wow. And it was so, it felt so vulgar and dismissive and hurtful. Um, oh, there's one other time that's fairly important that I was shamed for it. Um, my wife and I, there was a time that my wife and I were both in therapy with uh, different therapists. And those therapists were married to each other. Um, and they suggested that we come in for a joint session. And my wife had decided that she did not want to be involved in any role play, any hmm. indulgence of this fantasy and this fetish. Uh, and her therapist was cruel to me really? in that session in ways that shocked and upset me and messed up my sexual being for years oh man yeah. i'm so sorry yeah it was very difficult do you very remember difficult. what uh, what the therapist said oh yeah, every word every word um yeah it was she asked first she asked me about the fetish and where i thought again i talked about my theories and she looked horrified during that and my therapist said nothing because he was a bad therapist and might have been napping and mostly didn't want to get into an argument with his wife um i think and I said, could you stop looking so horrified as I talk about this, please? And she said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. But do you understand that this is very difficult for your wife to... And I said, yes, I do. And that's why I, we're here, because this is difficult for us. And we're and, and she said, well, is there anything else that turns you on besides that one thing? And I said, well, yes, there are other things that turn me on. Certainly certain types of lingerie turn me on in some ways. and uh, High heels and stockings can turn me on. And, and well, you're, these are still things other than your wife. These are still not parts of your wife that you're talking about. You're not, you're, you, I, can you talk about anything that just turns you on about her? Can you? Just for a moment? And then I just shut down and I was like, okay, I don't want to be scolded for telling you. Wow, what a terrible the therapist. Things that what a terrible not, therapist. Yeah, it was an awful session for me. Um, and uh, and it messed me up for a while. It really yeah. screwed with me. It was like, it's, it's everything I was doing, everything that my brain did sexually was wrong. Yeah. Um, and my therapist also for not interceding on my behalf and really yeah. helping me sort through what was going on there. It was it was a problem. And I'm sure she was filtering everything through her own shit. Not only through her own shit, but through whatever the conversations were with my wife that I shouldn't have had any knowledge of because yes, my wife is absolutely right to be able to say to feel comfortable saying i don't want to do that that is not something i'm comfortable with that is not the thing that gets to me sexually uh and 
and that's what she has to say to me. And what she says to her therapist is none of my damn business. Mm-hmm. And what her therapist was reflecting back at me was really a shaming kind of a... The 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 worst thing a therapist could do. Yeah. Um, you know, worse than negligent. It was, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, abusive. Yeah. yeah. There were many ways in which both of those people, uh, my therapist and hers, were, were deeply problematic in ways that we did not realize until years yeah. later. One of the things that I just get on my soapbox all the time uh, about on this on this podcast, and especially when I'm reading the surveys, is trying to hammer home that what turns you on is not a moral decision. It's just like freckles; yeah. they're either they're they're just there, they oh, just freckles. are, you know. They yeah. just they just <laughs> they just <laughs> you got a freckle fetish. I like freckles, yeah. um, and uh, you know. If you're going out and you're uh, dehumanizing somebody to feed your fetish, that's a different story. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and part of the shame from my fetish is that it feels as though it's dehumanizing. And even to me, it feels as though uh, I should be, I, and it's a moral judgment, but I feel mm. as though I should be attracted to the individual and the mind, not the body and not the visuals and not the, and yet I, I, I remain a human animal. Yeah. There's, um, there's, there's the animal turn on and there's the soul turn on in sex. And one day you want one, one day you want the other. Maybe some days you want neither or all your life you only want one of them. Who, there is no who day knows? that I have not wanted either. I, I so love being turned on. Yeah. You know? Um, there are so many feminists who fill out the surveys um, who are so ashamed that uh, they have fantasies of, of being raped. Uh, and it is so incredibly common uh, among men, among women. Moral quandary is an aphrodisiac when it comes to to fantasy i i really believe that and there's a guy that wrote a whole book about it a guy named jack morin m-o-r-i-n he wrote a book called the erotic mind and it's about that very thing the hurdles the ethical hurdles that you in your fantasy that you feel i'm a bad person for this getting me off he posits that that is the very thing that charges I had a wonderful therapist briefly, and I'm currently with a great therapist, Mm -hmm. but I had a wonderful therapist briefly, and I said, I wouldn't mind my fetish, and my fetish wouldn't bother me at all if it didn't come with so much shame. And she said, if it didn't come with shame, it wouldn't be a fetish, it'd just be a thing you're sort of into. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dylan, thank you so much for being so honest and sharing- uh, Oh, I made all this up. So so freely (laughs) uh, about uh, about all your your stuff. Thank you for allowing me to. I hope it's what you you wanted on this podcast and you weren't wanting me to be funny more often. It it was great. It was great. Um, It didn't feel like we were doing the morning zoo. (laughs) Quite the opposite. If people want to uh, know more about you, they can go to DylanBrody.com. They can, and buy all of my CDs and my books at the Emporium of Fine Words and Phrases. And uh, they can follow you on Twitter at... Dylan Brody. D-Y-L-A-N-B-R-O-D-Y. That is correct. The Russian-Jewish spelling of Brody and the Dylan Thomas spelling of Dylan. Thanks, buddy. No, thank you for having me. Many thanks to Dylan. So honest and vulnerable. And I love when people walk through that feeling of fear 
in revealing a truth about themselves. And I know it helps other people feel feel less alone. I know it helps me. Before I take it out with a bunch of surveys, uh, and there's two at the end that are so good. I mean, they're all good, but... Um, before I take it out with that, I want to remind you guys that there are a bunch of different ways you can help uh, the show out, uh, both financially and non-financially. And if you look at the show notes of the podcast, uh, you'll find a whole list of them. And it means a lot to me and it helps keep the podcast going because um, we are in a bit of a financial crunch lately and it would uh, it would really help if you could if you could contribute, again, financially or non, uh, non-financially. And the other thing I want to mention is that the back catalog is now available uh, at Stitcher Premium. It's $4.99 a month, and there's episodes going all the way back to the very first episode in March of 2011. And for that $4.99 a month, you also get access to a shitload of other podcast back catalogs, so it's a really good deal. Um, But just make sure when you sign up for Stitcher Premium that you uh, let them know that you are signing up through this podcast. Otherwise, I don't get a dime from them. So there's that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Fern. And I don't know if there's ever been an awfulsome moment that is as concise as this one. And uh, she writes, uh, Taking a moment from my high-pressure corporate job to send naughty photos from the bathroom to a 20-year-old drug dealer I slept with in the Dominican Republic who gave me chlamydia. Thank you for that. I wonder if she got chlamydia in the gift shop at the airport. Probably not, because I don't imagine that he was he was there in duty free. Right now, I could make a booty free joke, but I'm going to uh, avoid that because I don't want to lose listeners. Uh, this is a memorable vacation argument filled out by Alice, and she writes: "We were meant to be leaving for our annual summer road trip." to visit my paternal grandparents when all hell broke loose. My dad had been going through a period of underemployment while my mom was working long, stressful hours to keep the household afloat. Dad decided to make in, in parentheses, offering to the church and gave all of our savings away. He is devout and was probably in the midst of a fasting and prayer cycle in order to gain grace and blessings. Selfishly, he had not thought about consequences of his actions. When my mom went to the bank to withdraw funds for our holiday, there was nothing left. She hissed angrily, in the parentheses, way scarier than yelling, through foam-covered lips about how there wouldn't even be enough money left to put fuel on the car. She picked up the phone to call his mother, Dad completely lost it and started begging her not to call. She said he deserved it for his mother to know the truth behind why we wouldn't be able to visit them that summer. He ripped the phone off the wall and smashed it. We did end up going on that holiday, and in later years, I found out that my mom had to sneak over to my maternal grandparents to borrow some cash. I don't know if my father's mom ever did find out about his charitable habits, but what I did learn was that my dad is still scared of his mom, even as a middle-aged man. 
Wow. Wow. What a picture that that paints. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled, it, filled out by a woman who calls uh, herself I am in, um, I period am period N period imposter. And she is in her 20s, identifies as uh, bisexual, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, My experience is one that I have never thought was, quote, bad enough, and it felt stupid for being affected by it. I was nine at a family vacation and was left with family friends whom I had never met before. My dad told me he was going for a drive with my stepmom and that they would be back. A few hours went by and they hadn't come back yet, so my dad's friend suggested that I sleep in their room. Since there were two beds and five people, I had to sleep with someone. The mother told me to sleep in the bed with her son, who was 13. I laid down in my shorts and shirt, and she suggested that I put on her shirt to be more comfortable. So I did. She then suggested that I take my shorts off so I would be more comfortable. Wow. Wow. Sometime during the night, I woke up to her son caressing my privates and was frozen with fear. The only thing I did was move like I was waking up and stopped. Years later, around age 13, I told my mother as I hadn't told anyone, and she blamed me for taking my shorts off. Unfucking real. Unfucking real. I don't know what more to say as recounting this is making me nauseous. How can you blame a child for being assaulted? Uh, she has also been physically abused and emotionally abused. And, you know, I just want to say that mother that groomed you for her son, I don't even want to know. Actually, I do want to know what the fuck is going on in that family. What kind of secrets and holy shit, holy shit. That could be a documentary. Um, She's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, too much to recount. Most notable, my mother grabbing me by the ponytail and hitting my head against the kitchen floor because I was too scared to go into the dark to put the laundry in the dryer. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yes, positive experiences have made me feel that the negative feelings towards her are selfish. Uh, to which I want to say it's not a mathematical equation that determines the... Um, lovability or positivity of a parent. It's about you giving weight to the feelings of the difficult or painful things that you experienced. And in terms of how apparent parents, it's so much more important that they're consistent in their support, protection, and nurturing of you than it is whether there were more great things than than bad things because it's not about punishing them it's about you giving weight to your feelings so you stop punishing yourself um darkest thoughts i have sexual urges about pretty much everyone even if they are not quote attractive 
Darkest Secrets. At age 12, my mother's boyfriend's daughter made me eat her out. I did not tell anyone about it until around 21 and still did not tell my mother about it. I think that I liked it, even though I felt bad at that time. And that is really common, is for people to experience physical pleasure while their soul is experiencing something completely different. And it's probably good that you didn't tell your mom after how she reacted to the first thing that you you told her. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, many sexual fantasies involving women. I have not had many chances to act with women and no notable feelings about having those. Um, have you shared these things with others? Uh, I've shared these experiences and thoughts with my current boyfriend. I selfishly needed a partner that I had no secrets from and I didn't want to be alone with them anymore. I don't think that's selfish at all. I think that's a part of intimacy. Um, although some people would say that, uh, there are things that you, uh, shouldn't share with your partner, um, specifically, you know, maybe things that you're struggling with, uh, regarding them, uh, to have a, a place to at least work it out in your head, uh, if you do choose to share it with, uh, them. And I'm thinking in particular, you know, issues uh, that we go to support groups for or we share with our therapist. Um, anyway, uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? I honestly feel sick. This is the first time writing it down and sharing it with other people. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? With those who share my experiences, I would emphasize to them that if you feel a bad feeling about something, then you are allowed to have that feeling. Your experience is something, your experience of something is your experience and should not be minimized. Thank you for that. And I'm so sorry that you felt sick uh, writing this down. And I and the listeners really appreciate that you walk through that feeling in, in doing that because it's a big part of the show. And hopefully that, that will be, uh, that moment will be a t- touchstone for you to uh, begin to process what happened to you. This is a memorable vacation argument filled out by Pig Dog, and she writes, I went on a road trip with some girlfriends. We had a long day where we got off track by about six hours. When we finally got to a hotel for the night, I blew the fuck up. I yelled, I cried, I went into the bathroom and slammed the door. I slid down the back of it and tried to catch my breath. I heard my girlfriends leave to go outside. After a few minutes, I got myself together and went to leave. Holy shit. The door was jammed and I was stuck. Nothing can humble you, like getting trapped in a hotel bathroom after throwing a massive tantrum. My girlfriends came back and kicked the door down. So much laughter. Love it. Love it. And that, to me, those those are the signposts for healthy relationships is not whether or not you disagree, but how you come back together after after that. Um, this is a shame and secrets survey filled out by a guy who calls himself rock Fisher. He's straight identifies, uh, he identifies as straight and he's in his forties. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional, uh, environment. Uh, he writes a little dysfunctional, but very stable. Um, 
I would, I'll comment on that later. Um, he was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, I was abused by a male babysitter at age four. I remember a lot about it. He had me get naked and sit on his back. He showed me a Playboy magazine. He had me go down on him and he raped me. Then he gave me a Pepsi light. Definitely do not want that to be a an ad for Pepsi light. Uh, but I would like to run this by the ad team just to make sure it's not. Uh, and he turned on the Muppet show for me. Wow. Wow. I just recently, last year, told my mom and dad about it. And by the way, I, I, I hope I'm not being glib uh, about what, what happened uh, to you. Sometimes I just the darkness gets so heavy that the comedian in me has to break up the tension by saying something. Uh, my dad was crushed by it, and my mother, who had also been a little sexually inappropriate with me on occasion in the past, wanted details, which I found disturbing. The things that happened to me of a sexual nature as a child really messed me up sexually as an adult and early teen. Alcohol abuse, lying about insignificant things, sexual shame. I feel very uncomfortable having sex and have trouble having an orgasm unless I am masturbating alone. I link all of my problems sexually with my sexual abuse I received as a child. It made me very introverted sexually. I didn't lose my virginity until I was 29 years old with a strange girl I met online. December 1st, 1999, it was a very clinical experience. She had ants tattooed on her ass. It could have been worse. They could have been actual ants on her ass. And who gets ants tattooed on their ass? Unless you have honey tattooed on your butthole, and then it makes sense. Again, I apologize. I hope I am not minimizing what happened to you because this is heartbreaking what happened to you. Um, he's been emotionally abused. I was emotionally abused by my brother my whole childhood. He was a monster. I was bullied in school, had very few friends, and high school was a social nightmare for me. I started drinking alcohol pretty regularly in 10th grade and developed an alcohol prob problem pretty quickly. I drank whenever I could, but made sure that I never got caught by my mom or dad. I always stayed at a friend's house or did it in my room after they went to sleep. I learned to keep secrets pretty well by that time. I also attempted suicide twice by the time I was in 11th grade. Both times, I somehow pulled through. One time, I tried by running my Honda scooter in the garage. I fell asleep and was almost successful, but my scooter ran out of gas and I woke up on the garage floor with a bad headache. I've actually attempted suicide about five times in my life. The other four times were drug and alcohol overdose attempts, but each time I pulled through somehow. Nobody ever found out about my attempts. I was ignored so badly at home that nobody noticed. They must have just thought I was sleeping. Oh, man. I just want to give you a hug, buddy. I can't imagine the amount of pain that you have been in your life. And to be alone 
with all of that trauma. Any positive experiences with the people who have abused you? My mom has helped me out a lot in my life, and my brother grew up to actually be a decent human being. I don't hate either of them. The guy who raped me when I was four is a big fat loser who lived with his parents, and I haven't seen him in years, except for when I looked him up on Facebook. He's a piece of human shit. What are your deep deepest, darkest thoughts. I think about suicide from time to time still. I am done trying it, though. I am a husband and father, so I am responsible for a lot of other people. I am a good dad and husband. Everything I do, I do for them. I hope, though, that you take time out and do some stuff for yourself, because one of the, um, and, and not a way that it, it is at the, you know, the expense of your your kids, but you know, it's important for you to recharge your battery and, and practice some self-care because, you know, you've been through so, so much. Um, darkest secrets. My deepest secrets are my suicide attempts, I think. And after that, the sexual shit I have done. Sex with a hooker I met on live links once before I was married. And sex chatting online. I did a lot of that. Not so much anymore. These days, if I jerk off to the internet, it is to porn only. And then that's the uh, the end of his survey. Thank you for sharing that. And I I hope that if you haven't processed this yet with a support group or a mental health professional or a trusted friend um, that you that you do start talking about it because that is a lot of shit to tamp down. Uh, this is an awful some moment filled out by Anorexic Ang, either Ang or Ange, and uh, she writes, I just started uh, IOP treatment, and that stands for Intensive Outpatient, uh, for my eating disorder again. I'm old enough to be the mom of most of the girls in my group. They were talking about their school having a 90s... Th- Nice whistle, old old West prospector. They were talking about their school having a 90s-themed dance, and I was in school in the 90s. I was talking about how stupid I feel for being almost 40 and back in treatment. The girls all told me how, and then parentheses, inspiring isn't the right word, but it's the only one I can think of, that I was strong enough to admit that I needed help, be honest with my boys about what is going on. They didn't act like millennials do towards older generations. After all that happened, one of the girls was talking about how her mom is letting the bank repossess their house. One of the other younger girls said, wait, what do you mean? Like a priest needs to come in? I couldn't stop laughing. Oh, to be young again. A priest actually does come in on behalf of the bank, and uh, he blesses he blesses all the furniture as it's carted out. Almost said like that, like I was Canadian as it's carted out. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself "My name isn't Beck." Uh, she identifies as bisexual, is in her twenties, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My older sister made me do stuff when I was a child. It felt good, but I also knew it was wrong and a secret. Since becoming an older sister, I found myself having dreams about sexually assaulting my younger sister. I would never do that, but these dreams scare me. 
she's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, I let partners walk all over me despite wanting to speak up and fight against them. Any positive experiences with people who have abused you? I resent my older sister for these things, plus other things she has done to my mother and family. She is mentally unstable and makes it difficult to feel compassionate after all these years. Darkest thoughts. Uh, dreams about sexually assaulting my 13-year-old sister despite never ever doing it. It hurts because I'm studying and working to be a high school teacher, so I feel like a creep or a hypocrite. If we were all judged by our dreams, there wouldn't be anybody to be a warden in the prison that we would all be in. So stop judging yourself. It's not what you think or feel or dream. It's what you do with it. And you sound like a really sweet, sensitive soul. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being controlled and feeling helpless. I feel like I am not a strong woman. The fact that you filled out this survey and spoke your truth says the opposite to me. It says that you are a strong woman that you're not running from what your truth is, and you should be proud of yourself. How do you feel after writing these things down? Weird and uncomfortable. And it is a strong person that walks through the feeling weird and feeling uncomfortable and begins to process it. It's one of the bravest things that you can do. The easiest thing in the world is to just fall into the cycle of unconsciousness uh, or even repeating it um, you know, it takes no bravery and no insight to do that. So give yourself some credit, said the pot to the kettle. Or is it the kettle to the pot? Which came first? Oh, I hate myself. This is an awful moment filled out by worst daughter ever. What, by the way, where is that competition held every year? It's probably it's probably held at the kids' Thanksgiving table uh, or in a paneled basement. I'm not sure which one. Uh, she writes, I will be 25 this year. My mom wants me to move back home after four years of living alone in another city. I told her I can't and don't want to. She's been crying for hours. I told her I wear pants now. She threatened to kill me and going to jail for this because I want to live by myself and wear pants. I don't know if I should cry or laugh at the fact that this is the first time I stood up for myself against my mom and that this is the result of my first step toward having a, quote, backbone. And if it wasn't obvious, my mom is Muslim and so am I. Again, you know, talking about bravery, standing up to a parent who has had control over us for our whole life is one of the scariest things, certainly in our imagination before we do it. I mean, it's also one of the most liberating and empowering things. And it can sometimes even bring you closer together with that parent. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what that parent's reaction is. What matters is that you speak your truth and start to protect yourself. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself cryptid and she identifies as bisexual. 
She's in her 20s, and she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. My older brother told me on my fifth birthday that I was adopted and asked me if I knew what fucking was. I said no, so he showed me a hardcore porn tape he stole from our grandparents' video store. He would masturbate me with white cleaning gloves on and told me to moan. Later on, he forced me to fillet him or watch him masturbate himself. At the age of 11, he started to have sex with me until I was 14 and refused to ever visit them again. Years later, when I confronted him about this, he hugged me, cried, and said, I had no girlfriend at that time. I gladly would have accepted any other reason than this bullshit. That seems like a really common thing that people think is a good apology is to say why you did something and as scary as it is to not qualify an apology it feels better to the person you're apologizing to if you don't qualify it that's just my my two cents Whenever, uh, she's also been physically abused and emotionally abused. Uh, whenever my adoptive parents made me go to my grandparents' house on the weekends, my brother would beat me up and humiliate me every way possible. He put stones in socks and beat me with it. He would lock me in a pitch-black room in their cellar while he taunted me from the other side of the door and then leave me there for the night. He would shove spiders in my mouth and hold it shut until I ate them. Jesus. When I was about eight, he made me smoke weed in front of his 20-something-year-old friends and told them in great detail how I would enjoy fingering my butt while his stoner friends laughed at me. He pulled two teeth of mine with a pair of pliers. My adoptive parents were, and still are, very emotionally abusive. From an early age on, they convinced me that I was different, sick, and as they say, retarded. Any opinion of mine was, and still is, considered idiotic and invalid. I was their outlet for their anger issues, and everything was my fault. Wow. And then this moment is one of the reasons why I wanted to read this, because it is such an example of how complicated human beings are. Any positive experiences with the people who abused you? My brother would get beat up with a rolled-up newspaper a lot. After that, he usually would cuddle up to me, cry, and tell me that I was everything he had. Sadly, I enjoyed this because I loved him as my brother, and these were the only moments he was ever kind to me. Wow. The, the complexity of human behavior and feelings and relationships never ceases to blow my mind. Darkest thoughts. One time my adoptive parents and me visited my grandparents and my brother. I was in another room overhearing the adults sharing stories while eating cake at the dining table. I heard my grandfather go, and then I walk into his room and what do I see? He was on top of her. Everyone laughed. My mother laughed the loudest. That was so humiliating and hurtful that for years, I would imagine stabbing the grin off my grandfather's face. Darkest secrets. 
I wish worse things had happened to me. Somehow, I feel my past is not bad enough to rid me of the shame of being such a failure. This is one of the, the most horrifying surveys I've read. And that's what your brain is doing, is it's, it's minimizing it. But let me tell you, every single person who is listening to me read this just wants to give you a hug and protect you. And I really hope that you can find a way to begin protecting yourself because this is so painful to read and they sound like such sick sick toxic people this is a shame and secrets survey filled out by a bigender person who refers to themselves as my catchphrase is what they are uh Sexual preference, I'm mostly attracted to women, but being bi-gender and having genuine romantic feelings for one guy has messed up any chance at me labeling myself. And it's so not important for people to label themselves. So uh, sometimes I feel like I shouldn't have that question there, but um, I'd leave it there because I guess I'm curious uh, to know. Uh, they were in their 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, they were the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Not sure if it counts, but it feels like it, I guess. My mother gave me no sexual security when she went off the rails. She'd walk around in her underwear and talk about her sex life when I was a goddamn 11-year-old. Into high school, she'd try to set me up with guys that were way too old for me. I later learned that she fucked teachers in high school but I have no clue as to why she thought I'd be like that too. Gross. Uh, they've been physically and emotionally abused. I got spanked as a kid by my mom and it taught me nothing except that mistakes are unacceptable. She never even told me what I did wrong, so it was probably just her taking out her anger on me. Wow, what a bitch. My father made me feel like I was never good enough. I'd come home happy. I got straight A's in class, but then he'd ask me why they weren't A pluses. Holy fuck. Things got better when he gave less of a shit about the family. My mom was a whole another beast, though. I'd grown out of spanking, so instead she'd scream at me for most of the nonsensical shit. I saw her wail at my sister when her teachers reported that she was being neglected, which we were, so I learned to keep my mouth shut. My counselor in high school was shocked to learn about all the abuse and neglect after my mom abandoned me to live across the country. I couldn't tell her before because I knew CPS wasn't going to do anything except make mom mad at us. Man, I wish there was some other way. It just seems like such a catch-22 for kids that are caught in that place where they're trapped and they're being abused, but they don't, you know, there's that, what if I say something, but it's not enough for something to be done, then it's worse. 
Any positive experiences with people who abused you? My dad's been a huge support in my hobbies, especially when it comes to computers. He's one of the few older people I know that isn't completely against technology. Deepest, darkest thoughts. Since I was a kid, I've had random intrusive thoughts about hurting people. It doesn't really phase me now, but it frightened me as a child. Darkest secrets. I think I'm still in love with my best friend. He broke it off a year ago and we went back to where we were before. I thought I was over him, but lately I've been getting the same pining feeling I had in the year before we started dating. I want someone else to crush on, but I don't have many other close friends. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. It's only recently I've thought about this and I'm glad I have. Honestly, all I know is that I'm a bottom due to one, being lazy, (laughs) and two, I'm really insecure as to how well I could treat a lady. Thank you for that. Um, Have you shared these things with others? I share most things with my friends and I'm so glad they understand me so well. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel okay. I'm sick though, so it's comparative. Um, uh, comments to make the podcast better I love your show and I was wondering if you had any comic artists or illustrators in general on the podcast and we did um, we had God and I'm blanking on his name and it was about two years ago um, but if you look through it's probably on Stitcher Premium now but you can still probably Google it and and find something or um use the search box on our website uh, so the audio file of it won't be accessible but you should be able to read the show notes of of that um god why am i forgetting his name because i'm a hundred years old and uh finally these last two surveys or is this the last one yes this is the last survey Uh, This is filled out by, it's a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Eisbayer, E-I-S-B-A-E-R. And she writes, I had been secretly struggling with depression and anxiety my entire life. It finally got so bad it started to affect my physical health as well in the form of a mysterious autoimmune disease. It affected my sleep, which one only which one only made the depression even worse. I think there might be a typo in there. Um, I made a split from my family except my mother, which lifted me so much. Then, after a misunderstanding between my mother and I, she said she never wanted to see me again. After processing this big fight, another weight was lifted. I started to focus focus on my own health and found a naturopath. We worked on getting all of my hormones leveled, which helped so much. With each step, I was taking more and more of the depression and anxiety lifted from me. I got back into yoga. I found a teacher whose focus was on breathing called pranayama. It is used, it's about using the breath to move the energy around your body. The poses are slow, so the whole class is a beautiful and calm moving meditation. She invited her students to practice in the park. The first time was magical. We walked down a long, winding path of trees and into an open meadow. We practiced in a grove of trees with an opening to the sky in the middle. As the sun shone on my skin, the birds were chirping, the trees swaying slightly in the breeze. I was in sheer bliss. I felt like I could just float. Just then, a car alarm from someone in the park started. Instead of being annoyed at this, 
which was my previous knee-jerk reaction. I laughed at the imperfections of life. I don't think I would have remembered the moment of bliss for as long as I have, and probably always will, if it hadn't been for the horn ruining it, but then making me laugh. This was all the culmination of years of working on my whole health, that the metal part of my health is also healing as a result. Mushrooms and lotus flowers grow out of shit and mud. Why can't I? Thank you for that. You guys are the best. Your surveys just blow me away. Blow me away. And um, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just please remember, please remember, please remember. Now I'm starting to annoy myself. Just remember that no matter what you're feeling, you are not alone. But if we don't start sharing with someone and opening up, we'll never get that feeling of being a part of something bigger than ourselves. And to me, that's where the healing really takes place and then the developing tools to deal with the feelings when they come up and um, I'm so glad that I did that despite me believing it wouldn't work because then I get to be here and I get to read your beautiful surveys and look at that how it came full circle and then nice I miss Herbert's butthole for those of you that don't know what I'm referencing I'm not going to explain it I'll let you wonder what does that mean? Anyway, you're not alone, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.